Our Bible is now to 1 Peter chapter 4. I should also mention on Wednesday night we have our study and we're going through the Gospel of Luke right now, so you'll want to come to that. uh, We've really enjoyed, it's been a blessing going through that book. And just to give you an idea moving forward after we on Sunday mornings get through 1st and 2nd Peter, about the middle of September, uh, about when school starts, we're going to start up our home fellowships again. There are some that are going on through the summer, but we're really going to pitch home fellowships, and we're going to start a study in 1st John um, during the fall. And so 1st John's one of my favorite books, and I know you'll enjoy um, going through it with us and, and being involved in a group of people to connect and and minister to each other and share in God's word. So keep that on, on, in the back of your mind on the horizon. Pray about getting involved in one of those. First Peter chapter 4, and we're picking up with verse 12. And I've entitled this message today, The Art of Living Under Pressure. And you'll, I think you'll understand it after we go through the whole passage. But... Um, I don't think I have to belabor the point that life brings pressure. Life brings pain. Life is sometimes difficult. We've been discovering this as we go through 1 Peter, all the other chapters. In fact, the truth is we discovered it long before we got to 1 Peter because if you live life, you know sometimes it hurts. It's difficult. You go through those times of of just where you feel like you're going to explode, where you feel like everything around you is falling apart. It's just not working the way you think it ought to. And if you haven't gone through that, you will someday. Peter deals with that in a very realistic way. But here in this second half of chapter 4, boy, I, I love the things that he calls attention to in a very practical way. And where he winds up by the end, it ends up, just being, and really throughout the passage, a very positive take on, on pressure and pain and suffering. And so let's uh, read through these verses together, and then we'll come back and make some comments on them. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange, that word means foreign, like it's from another country, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of God, of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, or just saved by the skin of their teeth, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. 
So Peter here goes through the section, and it seems like there are some real contradictory concepts. The idea of rejoicing in suffering, for one thing, is hard for us to get our head around that idea, because for us, joy is generally celebrating that the suffering's over or that we're not suffering. And so to find joy in suffering is a strange sort of conundrum that he sets up here. Now, he also makes it clear that suffering is a part of the Christian life. And yet he tells us how to, in the midst of it, not only make the best of it, but actually benefit from it. And it's, it's a radical promise. It's an amazing um, scenario to, to paint and ultimately an introduction to the art of living. How to really get the most out of life, how to put the most into life, and how to benefit from the negative things that happen in our lives. The first thing that you see right off the bat is that suffering is a part of life. There in verse 12, he says, look, you're loved, but don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. He says, don't act like this is coming from some foreign country. Don't act like this, something must be wrong because you're going through difficulty. It's, there's a, and the word for fiery trial there literally means an ignition. All of a sudden you're cruising along, you're doing the best you can, and then poof, everything blows up. He says, don't act like there's something wrong if that happens. Because this is all a part of God's plan, as we see. Now, he starts off by saying, don't act like it's weird. And he ends by saying, those who suffer according to the will of God. So because we are under pressure does not mean we are out of the will of God. In fact, often quite the contrary is the case. When we are walking in the will of God, we will find ourselves in a pressure cooker. And we'll see as we go through the passage, but you've probably also learned in life that the irony that when life gets most difficult, when it hurts incredibly and when you feel the pressure on you, that is often the time when God does his greatest work in your life. I don't like that. I would rather say, you know, the pathway to prosperity is through luxury and ease. But I haven't found that to be the case. So often I find in my life that it's those painful times that really teach me. There was an old song years ago that said, I walked a mile with pleasure. We chatted all the way, leaving me none the wiser with what she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow. And never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And then the chorus goes, the, cr the frost is in the valley, the mountaintops turn gray, the promised buds all wither, their blossoms fade away. But our loving Father whispers, all this comes from my hand. And blessed are you when you trust what you just don't understand. And I've found that to be true in my life, and I know that many of you have. As I look across the audience and I see people who have been under pressure, and I see how it has helped us to grow. And so, again, the first thing is, yeah, it isn't weird that life hurts. This isn't difficult. Now, the second thing that we see as we look through the passage is 
there are really good things that God does through the suffering. Don't assume it's not supposed to happen and look for ways in which God is going to use this. Now you see in verse 13, he says, rejoice. Now the word there for rejoice isn't a word that means be ecstatic. It's the word Cairo in the Greek. It's, it's a word that means to be calmly happy. Not to, it's not overboard. It's not, whoopee, I get to rejoice. Oh, the pressure, I love it, bring it on. It's just the idea of there is a calm sense of knowing that God is in control that can give you a joy in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through. But it gets better even in that verse because he says, rejoice to the extent, to the degree, that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Now, the idea of partaking, partaking of Christ's sufferings seems kind of crazy because Jesus suffered for all of us and his suffering was all that it took for us to be redeemed. The word there for partake and partake of Christ's sufferings is the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that is generally translated fellowship. It talks about being together. The root word of it, koinos, means in common. And so what he's saying is that as we go through suffering and we find joy in the middle of it, then at that time, sometimes we will discover that fellowship with, and as he says, Christ's sufferings or his, his pathos, his pathimo really, but it's, it's the idea of we are connecting with what he felt. We are discovering what his heart is like. And so as we find that we have koinonia, fellowship, with the pathos of Christ, with that jointly kind of going yeah, I get you, I know, what, I know what you feel. Then, he says, when his glory is revealed, ultimately, you may also be glad, same word translated rejoice in the first part of the verse, you'll have that, that Cairo, that calm sense of joy, with exceeding joy. The word there for exceeding joy is one word in the Greek that means to jump for joy. He says this process that you're going through, if you can discover a measure of joy, as you do that, then you find that you're going to connect to Jesus Christ to understand what he felt like. Why is that so important? Because he felt it for us. When you talk about the passion, which is what the word that's, you know, that's used here for his sufferings, it's really the word that means passion or pathos. When you see his sufferings and you realize that's how much he loves us, and you also realize it's over. He made it through. He said, it is finished. We connect to him by saying, I am beginning to discover some connection with what you are feeling. And I recognize then your love for me. And ultimately, when we see him in all of his glory, our Cairo, our calm, sucking it up kind of joy, turns into an explosion jumping for joy as we celebrate the fact that we made it. 
as we celebrate who he is and what he has done. You also see that even when you're, you're reproached in verse 14, you're blessed. Now that word for blessed there in the Greek is the word makarios. It's a, a word that really, I mean, people don't like the term lucky because you know, people have turned the definition of lucky into something that's really random, that just sort of happens. But the, originally the old English word luck um, was, meant the same thing as makarios, blessed or fortunate. And he's basically saying that when you see what God has done for you and you go through these hard times, and even when people are putting you down, you feel like, I am so lucky. Lucky to have people treat you bad? No. Lucky to live the kind of life that, that offends people sometimes because they're jealous of you. Anyone who is reproaching you for doing things that are right is just wishing that they could connect with what you have, what God is doing in your life. And so he said, if someone's giving you a hard time, all that does is prove that you're lucky, is prove that you're blessed, is prove that you're fortunate, that life has done something right in your life because they, they wouldn't be attacking you if that wasn't the case. And he, he says also that the spirit of glory there in verse 14 and of God rests upon you. Now that word there for rest isn't a word that just means it's sitting on you or that's where it abides, but the word is literally the word for rest. At its root, it means to stop. And so he's saying, even when you're going through tough times, you're able to rest. You're able to stop. It's okay if you wind everything down. It's okay for you to take a sabbatical. It's okay for you to take a day off, to Sabbath, to rest. And I think people in life who are not fulfilled, people who feel like there's something missing in their life, the one thing that they're scared to death of is stopping because they're afraid if they stop, they won't be able to get going again. And when we push ourselves too far, we get to that point. I know often if I have something to do, like in terms of ministry, and then I'm going home for a break, and then I have something else to do, like today I'm speaking in the evening at another church, but they moved their Sunday evening church service to, I think, five o'clock. So that's kind of scary, because usually I go home and I'm like, I can just fall asleep, turn on a game or whatever, even a golf tournament, that'll put you to sleep. And, you know, and then it's just like, oh, and I don't have to worry about getting up, but now I, in the back of my mind is like, oh man, maybe I should just stay awake. And if, if we have something to do in the evening, I come home from work and Anne goes, just relax. And I'm like, I can't. We have to leave within an hour. I can't afford to stop. I gotta keep moving and keep my momentum going. Well, that's life for people who've never discovered that relationship with the Lord. But one thing suffering will teach you, one thing pressure does to you is you realize sometimes you just can't keep going. Sometimes you'll be forced, maybe it's through sickness or injury or being broke or you know, not, your car not starting or something. You get to a point where you just go, I threw the brakes on, I can't help it. I have to stop. And that's something that comes from pressure too. He will pressure you to stop, to rest. 
And so he says, you know, that's something good that comes from it. The glory and, and the spirit of God rests upon you. And, and then he says that, uh, by the way, though, and, and he goes on and later he talks about some other things that are beneficial, but the point is, good things will come, good things can come when you're under pressure. And that's the point I really want to make here. And you could pick some others out here in the passage as well. But the third point I want to point out to you is found mainly in verse 15 and 16. And that is, there is a, um, a suffering and a pressure that isn't from God. You know, we, we say, oh, you know, suffering can do wonderful things for you. And it's true. Suffering can do great things for you. It can give you joy. It can give you peace. It can help you to mature. does a lot of things. But he says, look, I'm not saying every kind of suffering does. There is suffering that's according to the will of God. But there's also suffering that's not according to the will of God. And that's where he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Now, it's kind of interesting because he starts with like the worst thing he can think of in this list. It's interesting where he ends up in the list. And that's kind of a setup. That's kind of what I think Peter's doing. Because first he goes, okay, look, I'm not saying that if you suffer for being a murderer that that's going to be a good thing for you. It's not. And you go, okay, great. And then he says, or as a thief. And you're going, well, well, that's the word kleptos. And you're going, I'm not a kleptomaniac. I'm not ripping people off. And, you know, am I a thief? Do I ever take something that's not mine? Do I ever work on personal things while I'm being paid at work? Do I ever, but you're like, mm, you know, I think basically I'm not a thief. At least I don't think I'm suffering a lot for being a thief. The idea is, though, if you get fired for stealing, don't go, praise God. No, that was yours. That was your deal. That's not suffering according to the will of God. But then he, he scales it down a little more and he says, or for being an evildoer. And that's a general word for someone who's doing something ugly, kakopoios. And so he goes, look, if you're suffering for just acting disgusting, that's not what I'm talking about. That also is not legitimate suffering that you're going to expect God to bless. Sorry, you, you have to own that one. But then the last word that he uses, and you can tell that it's a hard word to, um, to translate because where it says a busybody in other people's matters, that's all one word in the Greek. And it, it's a word that there, there are two words put together. It's allotree episkopos, write that down. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to write it down. But the first part of the word means other people's stuff. And the second part of the word is the word episkopos that you're probably familiar with. It's a word that's translated bishop or overseer. The leaders of the church are called episkopos. And episkopos, epi means over or upon, and skopos is the word for look at and watch. And so an episkopos is an overseer. So this whole phrase means if you're suffering because you're being an overseer of other people's things, are you with me on this? So here's what it is. I decide that I'm going to take upon myself to be your babysitter, 
to be your Holy Spirit, to be your conscience. I'm afraid that God's not speaking clearly enough to you, and he really needs me to, to be your mother and to oversee you and to put myself in that position. How much of our suffering comes because we stick our nose into things that aren't our problem? Do you understand that everything that you care about isn't something that you need to do something about? Everything that bothers you isn't necessarily something that is your responsibility. Generally, it should just be your prayer list. Now, if God does make you an overseer for someone, then by all means, use that gift. And if you are in a position of responsibility whereby you are assigned oversight over certain people, do that as well, but keep it to the limits of the scope of your episcopos. It's just, it, it, it has a certain focus to it even when you have responsibility. For instance, I am an episcopos. I am a pastor. I'm an overseer of the church. But that doesn't mean, uh, you know, primarily that's me. I teach you the word and I try to help you to discover life for yourself and I try to guide the church so that we emphasize things that ought to be emphasized and sometimes responding to people's questions and things like that. But I am not your mother. I'm not your babysitter. I'm not someone who is going to tell you, you know, if, if you're going, um, yeah, I have three different jobs with offers, which one should I take? I don't know. I'm not a magic eight ball. And I really don't, and even in things like, you know, I'm struggling with whether to stay married or not, I'm not going to put the weight of my heart in what you do. I've done that in the past. And I've sat there and talked people into stuff. And at its worst and even at its best, that becomes nothing more than an unbiblical, unhealthy shepherding whereby somehow you think that there's somebody who's supposed to tell you what to do. I try not to tell you what to do. I'll be really honest about what I do. And I, and I try to show myself as warts and all as honestly as I can before you. And if, if you ask me about how I make certain decisions or how I live my life, I'll tell you. But I have spent an awful lot of energy trying to impute my leadership in places where it really wasn't my business. Now, this whole notion of having someone else's oversight, you can also reverse it. Some of the pain in our life comes because we get involved too much in other people's lives. Maybe relatives who desperately need somebody to babysit them, and so we do. Maybe it's our own kids when they're grown, and we think, oh man, I, I guess they didn't get it, and so we need to rework some of these things, and I'll manipulate them with money, I'll make deals with them. Hey, that didn't work when they were smaller, it's certainly not going to work when they're older. Let them make their own decisions. You're not their boss you're, you're someone who's to pray for them. But flip it around the other way. Some people get, go through a lot of suffering because they allow other people to be their episcopos. Because they're always expecting, they're walking around with an umbilical cord hanging out looking for a place to plug it in. They're just like, okay, somebody be my mommy. You know, you don't need anybody. You, that's what God is for. You're big people. 
you need to let God be your episkopos to a degree. In areas of spiritual things, yes, you submit to those who are in spiritual authority over you. But anytime you give too much authority to someone else or anytime you take too much authority from someone else, you find yourself in a spot whereby you are under pressure and you have no idea how it got there. How many people are under pressure financially because they've extended themselves too much trying to help somebody else? Trying to pay someone else's bills. Over in Proverbs, it talks about you know, how if you have co-signed with someone, if you have made yourself a debtor for somebody else, it says, go to them and to save your life, get out of that deal. Do not do that. Don't make you carry the burden of somebody else's irresponsibility. And so, you know, that contributes, I think, more than we would ever like to admit to sometimes the pressure and the pain in our lives. And so, Peter is saying, look, if you are under pressure because of you killed somebody or you're stealing stuff or you're acting in an ugly way or you are sticking your nose into other people's lives or inviting other people to stick their nose into your life, you better eat those because those are your problem. God isn't doing that to you. A lot of times people bring suffering on themselves and they go, God, how could you do this? And he goes, I didn't, you did. I gave you a choice, you messed up. Now take responsibility for it and own it. And so, you know, we see this and then he says also, if anyone suffers as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're a non-Christian if you're suffering for your own poor choices. It just means that those aren't Christian means of suffering. But if you are a Christian, you're suffering and you didn't really contribute to it, then let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. The word there for matter is the word that means your portion, your allocation. And again, some of it just comes with life. Own your part of it. If this is your day to have a rough time, if this is your day to take pressure and you haven't done anything wrong, as he says, don't be ashamed. The word there for ashamed doesn't really at its root mean ashamed, although that's probably the connotation, but it's a, it's a more general term than that. What the word actually means is to get your face all scrunched up, and that's what it means. So he's like, don't scrunch your face up if you're suffering and you didn't do anything about it. Now, if you made it happen to you, okay, scrunch your face up, I suppose. I was... Uh, this week, Ann and I went over and babysat for Eddie and Sally so they could go out on Friday night. And I was there with Isaiah, who's two, and Mackenzie, who's four, and I was trying to get them to eat their food. And I, I, I thought I used to be pretty good at that, but it's a lot harder when you're older. But um, I was messing with Isaiah and acting like I was going to eat one of his little chicken nuggets and his tater tots, and then I started acting like I was eating him, and I had a real ugly look on my face, and I'm trying to intimidate him, and he's just laughing. And Mackenzie, who was on my left, she goes, uh, Pastor Dave, we don't do that. <laughs> and I said, you don't do what, Mackenzie? And she made the ugliest face she could, this little 30-pound girl, and she goes, we don't do mean faces. And I go, not even when you're just goofing around? And she shakes her head and goes, no. <laughs> so I said, you legalistic little brat. <laughs> no. 
I was so blessed that she was being taught that. And unfortunately, some of us, when we get older, we forget that lesson. And we're suffering, and we're twisting our face up, and we're, oh, you know. And Peter's going, ah, you don't need to go there. There are good things that you can do. And now, he talks about, you know, sometimes God is judging Christians. Sometimes you are going to pay the price, but judgment begins with the household of God. So even those sufferings that you're undergoing, the pressure that you are under, because you're stupid, because you made poor decisions, or you allowed someone to have a place in your life that they should never have had, and now you're reaping the consequences, even that is God's judgment, even that is God purifying you and bringing you through this process. So ultimately, it's all good. And, you know, righteous people barely get saved, so what about people who reject God? Be glad that you're making it. Be glad that God cares enough about you to hold you accountable. But now, when we come to this last verse, I think this is really the point of what he is saying. This is where it culminates, and and this is where I think I, I would really want to call your attention to verse 19. You know, we've already said, yes, suffering is a natural part of life. It's part of God's plan for us. God, as he works in our lives, that pressure brings all kinds of good things and there are good responses that can come from it. We need to own the suffering and pressure that we put on ourselves and realize that sometimes you get judged for that, but that's cleaning us up and preparing us for heaven. But check out verse 19, therefore. So like, here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm saying Here's the point. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Interesting. Because what it comes down to is this. You're suffering. Life is hard. You are under pressure. Bottom line, here's what you do. You commit your soul, your suke, who you are, your, your very nature, commit it to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. That word there for doing good is one Greek word, agathopoios. It's two words put together. The word agathos is just a word for good, and poios comes from the Greek verb poieo, or poieomai, which is a word that means to make or to build or to create. It's the same word that, remember over in Ephesians chapter 2, where in verses 8 and 9 it says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship. Some people have translated that, we are his work of art. And it's the word poema. It's the same root as this. We are his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And this gets to the same thing that Peter is wanting to communicate here. He's saying, do you understand that God is working a process in you? In fact, it is God's nature to be the creator as he's called the faithful creator, the word faithful there is the word pistos, which means someone who's trustworthy. The word creator is a word 
catistase, and it's K-T-A-C-A-C-E or S-A-C-E. Um, but catistis is the word that means to create. It's used of, of God being the one who invents things, who, who makes them from scratch kind of a deal. Now, these two words are interestingly related because we are called the poema of God. We are his workmanship. We are the, the it, our English word poem comes from this word. A poem is a piece of creative writing, not necessarily with a great purpose, but it's put together carefully, words chosen and selected um, in, a, in a thoughtful way, so that in the whole, when you read a poem, it becomes a work of art. I, I, there are some that are, are dumb, but a great piece of poetry touches your heart. A great song lyric just has a way of touching you in places that, wow, it's surprising. And it's that idea of an art, just like a great painting, just like a great, you know, architectural design. Anything that someone creates and builds and develops is just, it connects on a soul level to us that that sometimes is very surprising. Now, that's what Paul said over in Ephesians 2, that God is doing with your life. You are his masterpiece. You are his poetry. Everything in your life, he is choosing words and events and people and characteristics very carefully so that when he has done with you, you will look at what he has done and go, wow, this is amazing. Now, what Peter is saying, and he's connecting us to the creator, the catiscus, the, the one who, who's the original inventor, but he's saying, you know, you are, and I, are created in the image of God, and God is by his very nature a creator, and he is a creator that you can trust, and he is working in your life so what do you do when you're under pressure? You create something too. You make something good. Agatha Poyas, you, you are someone who decides, whatever I got, whatever, and it's probably a horrible metaphor, but whatever hand was dealt to me, I'm going to play it for all it's worth. Whatever gifts I have, I am going to use them to the greatest of my possible abilities, because I want to live my life like I am making something good. I want to live my life as if decisions that I make become pieces to the puzzle, if ways in which I reach out to others actually paint something wonderful in their life, that when my life is over, I, I don't want to just leave a footprint. I want to leave a masterpiece. Because when God's done with me and I'm done with this world, I want there to be some legacy. I want there to be something left that actually means something. And not necessarily that's just useful. Useful things wear out and we get rid of them. But many of us live our lives as if we are a tool. We go, okay, I just got to do what I have to do. I just have to do my work. I just have to get it done. I have to be useful. I have to serve. And eventually, like an old tool, we wear out. 
But we are more a paintbrush than we are a tool. And we are designed to create. And an awful lot of times, pressure is the time that brings out the greatest creativity when you think about it. Hey, you never have to get so creative than when you're broke and don't have a place to live. Now you have to think outside the box. What are my options? Almost all great art is created out of pain. The best songs that were ever written, the best poems that have ever been recited, the best paintings that have ever been created, there's something in our pathos that connects with the ability to express in a way that touches people deepest. This occurred to me recently as I was, I have an iPod in my car with thousands and thousands of songs on it. It's just great technology. But I have it set on random. And so I get some interesting mixes often. You know, a message from Pastor Chuck will come up, followed by a Spanish lesson, followed by Billy Idol's White Wedding or something. And it's like, well, this is weird. You know, how did it, what's Aerosmith doing with Simon and Garfunkel with? But that's kind of the way my life feels, random things coming at me. But I, I realized the other day as I was listening, you know what touches me the most? You know what songs, when they come on, I never fast forward? Are songs that remind me of difficult times. Are people who have been able to communicate in poetic terms what it feels like, what the pathos of life is like, what my pain is like. And, and to connect with that is just amazingly touching and powerful. Well, in our lives, each of us has gifts that can be used creatively. Each of us has opportunities to paint a masterpiece with what we do with our pain. And we can turn that pain into something creative or we can retreat into our cave and just wait for it to go away. Creativity, though, is a threat. Because to truly be creative, you have to bare your soul. And some people are going to laugh at you. And some people are going to judge what you've done and say that it's meaningless. But creativity is where we find ourselves closest to the faithful creator. Now, if you're an artist or a musician or a, you know, a dancer or something like that, it's easy for you to think of ways to make a masterpiece out of what you do. But I think sometimes we have to be creative in seeing the gifts that we actually have. There are some people who are able to bake in an incredibly creative way that just blesses people. Julia Salza is a work of art, no doubt about it, that you never forget once you, once you have it. And you know the love that went into mixing that up. Now, other people paint in the lives of their children by helping their kids to be creative and to grow. Some people create by taking an old car and fixing it up and making it beautiful and having people see that, you know, even an old beat-up rusty car isn't done yet. Good things can, can still come. And that can provide a great metaphor for people. Some people may write prose. Some people may do other things, but, but it's making a difference in people's lives, building beauty out of ugly that's really what we're called to do. And that's the payoff under pressure. And that's why, as I entitled the message, The Art of Living Under Pressure. What you do this week is going to create 
some art. And in your good creating, in your well-doing, if you commit it to the Lord, you can discover how worth it it was. And maybe you just have a way of calling someone and encouraging them or writing them an email in a way that just the, the way you put it is simple, but it's, but it's powerful. I don't know what it is that God wants to create through you because we're all different. But I know this, we serve a faithful creator and he calls us to commit our lives, even in our discomfort, to him and to make something good out of it to be creative. Recently, the ladies had a, had a conference and, and they focused it. Well, the, the idea came from Isaiah 61, verse 3, where um, it's talking about the Messiah and how he will bring beauty for ashes. And, and that was sort of the theme of the conference. And Isaiah, over there in, in chapter 61, the whole, uh, the whole section is... Um, Jesus actually quoted part of it as he stood up in the temple, but it's a prophecy concerning what he does in our lives and what he does with our lives. And I'll just read you the first few verses here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, verse 1, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And he just goes on and it's great stuff. But the ladies called their conference Beauty for Ashes. And that phrase is one that you're probably familiar with. It misses something in the English. Because in the Hebrew, this is a play on words. The word for beauty is the word in Hebrew, peer, P-E-R. And, and that's referring to, um, well, and then the word for ashes is the word ephir or E-P-R. So the first two letters of the word are swapped. You take the word ashes, and ashes were what they would put on their heads when they were mourning death. And, and then you switch the first two letters around, and it spells the Hebrew word peer for beauty. And that is actually a word that refers to a tiara that a princess would wear. And the imagery here is that God will brush the ashes out of your hair and place a beautiful tiara on your head. And I think it was, it was a great idea for a women's conference because so many women are, are dealing with pain in their lives and not thinking that beauty is ever going to emerge from it. But in that conference, and I would encourage you to, to, um, to get the CDs, even if you're a man, you should listen to these. Um, don't inundate them this morning, but you can contact the church office later and get a hold of these. And I think they're probably online as well. But um, Terry Green shared her testimony. She had to grow up quick when she had a disabled daughter, and then her second daughter had all sorts of problems. And, and Terry was just devastated and wanting to take her own life. And then she thought, if I take my life, I'll, I'll hurt my husband, Brad, too much. So she had a plan to actually kill him and their handicapped daughter and herself. 
But Terry is like 90 pounds, and Brad was a lineman at USC, so that wasn't going to happen. And ultimately, God worked in her life and turned it around and made it into something beautiful. She actually, because of nice things that people did for her, she ended up creating a nonprofit organization that is, that is trying to bring beauty into people's lives. And it, it's called Simple Acts of Kindness. So many people did little things to her, and she shared how those little things made all the difference to make her life into something beautiful that it is today. Her life is still difficult. Raising a child that needs constant care is not easy. It's never, it's never gotten easy for her, and it never will. But she now organizes, and they have people who donate money, and they go bless people in simple ways, just anonymously help people out. And she wrote a book about it called Simple Acts of Kindness. Uh, they could order it for you over there if you'd like to. And then her daughter, Taylor, um, who had been through horrible problems, and she pulled her shirt up to show the, all the scars that she has, and she shared how God worked in her life. And then in the afternoon, Sally McRae, Eddie's wife, shared about the hurt from her life and how God has turned that around and worked it. These are three ladies who are my heroes, because each one of them is in the process of creating a masterpiece. Terry, with the ministry that she does, with the book she has written, with the way that she can share with people, her daughter Taylor, as she sings, praises to the Lord, she's a beautiful singer. Sally, as she lives her life, is just a thing of beauty, supporting her husband and her kids and running ridiculous distances and writing some of the most beautiful writing I've ever seen. And you can see some of her writing on the women's blog. But I, I look at this and I go, here are three people who are deciding to take the pressure in their life and turn it into a masterpiece that touches other people's lives. And I don't know what God wants to do in your life. I'm not, I'm not your boss, but God is. He is the overseer of your soul, and you need to hear from Him. If, you, if it's been a long time since you created anything, th then I say, don't let the pressure keep you from creating. Make something. Come up with a new idea. Come up with a different way to connect with others. Come up with some expression of, of what God has done for you in a way that maybe it'll, it'll touch other people and make a difference in their lives. Don't stop making good. Because if you suffer, you get nothing just by suffering. The payoff is when you suffer and create good things when you bring good out of life, when you bring it to the table and go, look at this. And, and that's what God wants us to do. And that's the heart of Peter. Peter, the guy who blew his whole life, he had the opportunity to be closer to Jesus, as close to Jesus as anyone for three years personally. And then he completely fell apart and blew it. And yet, look at what he did. In fact, Nobody ever thought a fisherman would write a book. But as we have been studying through the book of 1 Peter, I guarantee for something this well-crafted, for something this profound, and you go, yo, well, Paul wrote 14 books of the New Testament. You know, Peter just wrote a couple. Yeah, but Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a scholar. And in some ways, the beauty of these two little books that he wrote took a lifetime to create. 
and to communicate. And there's a certain communication that comes from the legitimacy of having been there and having a degree in hard knocks that ends up causing that. So what are you supposed to create? I don't know. But if life is under pressure, that's your signal. Get busy making something. Get ready, get busy creating good because our God is a creator and he wants your life to produce masterpieces for his glory. That's the payoff of all the pathos. That's the reward of all the pain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and this reminder. And the truth is, when we're going through pain, the last thing we think about is creating something beautiful. All we focus on is survival. And yet, Lord, we know that in this crucible, this is where our best work could be done because it was in the pain of the cross that you did your greatest work. And we want to follow you. So, Lord, help us to learn how to live our life as a work of art despite the pain. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.